So tonight, I like to continue a little with the feeling tone, but before that, I like to continue also with the factor of awakening. And uh, one of the factors I want to talk about is pity, P-I-T-I. And pity uh, is generally translated as is a rapture, is a joy. And what I found interesting in this factor, I mean, of course, if you look at the possibly traditional Abhidharma definition, then it is more connected to the meditative absorption. But I think if we look at the term and try to apply it in a modern practice context, I think it points out that one of the factors of awakening is actually joy, is actually what I would call a pleasant feeling. And so that although what we do seems to be a little like hard work, and because we in silence, it does seems to be like, you know, fun and, fun and games. Once I remember, I was teaching a, a day in a foreign country, and uh, I mean, I did the least I could do with the people who had not done much meditation. And then somebody said, you know, can't we do something else? Like, you know, singing or <laughs> dancing. And I said, well, you know, singing, if I sing, it's going to rain. So I'm not sure I would want to point, use that. So, I mean, it looks like it's not so much fun. But actually, one of the important factors is pity, is joy. And so basically, it's saying it's a certain lightness. It's a certain way to be uplifted. And I think we can have this in a possibly ordinary way or in a more practice-oriented way. But if I think in terms of ordinary ways, uh, somebody very kindly in our little kitchen uh, put a vase and one of the flowers in the vase at the beginning of the week was this tiny little yellow rose, which I saw but not, did not really notice because it was just a tiny bud. And then three days later it started to open and then I smelt it. And then now it's opening more and more, and it's so beautiful. So, I mean, I can pass in front of him, and nothing happened. But if I stop, I look at it, I smell it, and I have this feeling of joy, this feeling of being present to life, to beauty. And so that doesn't mean, that's why I think it's very important, as Stephen was saying in the discussion, the fact that we are not grasping or identifying doesn't mean we are not experiencing. That actually you can experience joy, you can experience sadness. And so that's something also I want to look at today, this grasping. So that's why I think often we can find actually joy, which will be a factor in our life. Can I rejoice? Can I have this joyful moment in my life? Or am I just, in a way, blind 
to the possibility of having this pity, this joy, being nearly enraptured. But I know the roses, the rose, at one point maybe all the petals are gone, or it all become brown. But right now I can be present to it. But that presence and that quality of being joyful. And that also I think we can see in terms of the meditation, that for example, we doing what is called vipassana meditation. And often this is translated as insight. And so you think, you know, I mean, I need to have an insight. And you might not have an insight every two minutes. But time to time, you might see something clearly. And when you see something clearly, when you have an insight, it's not just kind of like a blank insight. Oh yeah, I have an insight. But generally there is a little feeling of exhilaration, of joy, of being uplifted by seeing something clearly. It's the same sometimes as we practice. As is personally, I think the main uh, effect of the practice of the meditation is by coming back, coming back and investigating, actually helping with the releasing, helping with the degrasping. And often through this degrasping, this releasing that happens through the practice, suddenly you can feel, it's like a physical sensation of your heart opening. And it's like in that moment you could say, you have no trouble with nobody. And it's an amazing experience. And again, it's very joyful, very uplifting. And another experience we might have is suddenly realizing that all of us, as what we call in Zen the Buddha nature, the possibility to be awakened, the possibility to flourish as a human being. But when you have that experience in meditation, when you, at that moment, you really know experientially that everybody has that possibility. And again, there is that joy, there is that exaggeration, that uplifting. So to see that that's also part of the practice. This is not like a practice where we're supposed to look sad and doom laden, but really to, it's actually a practice to help us to have more joy in our life. And then I wanted to talk about feeling thoughts. And so first, because I got a few notes about the feeling thought. I was a bit vague, it was a bit weird, and what did I mean by it anyway? And so what I thought I would start with is actually trying to look at a definition. What are we talking about when I say, can you be aware of feeling thoughts? Personally, I think it's really extremely important, and especially in terms of daily life, to actually be aware of the feeling tone. Because I feel that the feeling tone is what makes us act. And, so, and also I feel that freedom resides between the contact, feeling tone, and what happens after that. 
That's where we have the choice. At that moment, you have the contact, you have the feeling torn, what do you do then? That's where reactivity in terms of really the practical experience in everyday life happen. And the problem with feeling torn, especially the negative one, I'll talk more about that, is that if you feel a negative torn, here, suddenly you spread it there. I mean, they have nothing to do with it. But you might speak to them in quite a nasty way. But because over there, something happened. And I think to me that's why it's so important to be aware of the feeling tone. But what am I talking about? So uh, recently I, uh, I wrote a chapter for a book on psychology and meditation. And so I kind of, you know, looked at uh, feeling tone. And so basically feeling tone, which are Vedana in Pali, V-A-D-A-N-A. So it's very much referring to the hedonic tone. But not everybody is familiar with this term, hedonic, H-E-D-O-N-I-C. That's generally actually nearly the, the best term, but it's too, uh, it's not very practical. So sometimes people talk about affective tone. And then a lot of the time we talk about feeling tone. And so, if you want to be even more uh, scientific, then sometimes they use the term valence. And I don't know if you know what that is, but some of you might. And that's why, I mean, then I'm going to give you the most complicated definition, but you don't have to remember it. The valence of this affecting tone is conditioned by associated memories that were formed from previous experiences. So that's one definition. Let's not get excited. <laughs> and then you have the definition of Analayo. And Analayo is our great scholar, great monk Buddhist scholar. And so I think we can uh, trust him. <laughs> and so he said, feeling feels in the sense that it feels such affective tones as pleasure, displeasure, and hedonic tonality. So, now I'm finished with that. <laughs> Just in case a few of you were interested. So, what we're talking about is actually fairly simple. Though because I think on retreat, why is it vague? Is because generally it's fairly neutral. That's why for a long time I could not do this practice because I was looking for something which was not obvious. So I would sit there and look for the feeling tone and nothing was happening until I realized that was a feeling tone, that nothing was happening. So what I was finding was a neutral feeling tone, which I think is quite an interesting one. And so the feeling tone is really the basic. You see something and you have this little feeling of, hmm, it's good, hmm, not too much, hmm. Not much at all. So it's kind of like, I mean, we are beautiful weather, beautiful environment, and you might just, you know, see the tree, or you might go at the back and have this beautiful view. And generally, I would presume that when you see the beautiful view, you so 
visual contact with the beautiful view, and I generally don't think you feel, well, it's not bad, but it's not the Grand Canyon. I mean, you can go that way, and then, you know, the feeling tone might a little bit down in comparison to the amazing feeling tone with the Grand Canyon. But generally, you will see that and feel, hmm, there'll be like a kind of a pleasant feeling tone. And then, who knows, hopefully not, you might walk in the corridor. Let's say you were to, if you went to walk in the corridor, we come out of the corridor, and then we see some really dirty rubbish in the corner, and we think, wait a minute, what's that? Who did this? You know? So generally, you see it, and generally there'll be a little unpleasant feeling tone. Before we had a cat who was a little uh, of a hunter, so he would kind of relieve us sometimes, really kind of. And I would, ooh, <laughs> generally, I, ooh. And then, of course, I had to get rid of it. So it's kind of that basic. You see something, you hear something, you taste something, you smell something. And just that little, one could nearly resume it. I like it, I don't like it, I don't think much about it. That's generally the way we could define it. But it is true, partly, that often we have the impression that the feeling tone is in the object. So the dirty rubbish, as a badness within it, the beautiful yellow rose as a beauty within it, when actually this is really showing us that the feeling tone is actually relatively constructed. And it has been constructed through our experience. So I see the rose and I think, hmm. Somebody who is allergic sees a rose and thinks, wait a minute, I don't want that. I am allergic to whatever. So you can have the same, and you will have a different feeling tone, the same with music, the same with painting. You know, I have, I have friends who are artists, and so I go to gallery and ex exhibition, and I think like recently I saw a wonderful exhibition in Paris of Bill Viola, who makes amazing video, it's really, really special. So I was really uplifted by seeing that. And then just to check, I asked my brother-in-law, who is an artist, what do you think of Bill Viola? Portentous and religious, which is possibly why I liked it. But, and high, high production value, which seems to be a bad thing in certain circles. <laughs> which I also appreciated. So it was very interesting. You know, I looked at it and pleasant feeling tone, and he looks at it and possibly not terribly pleasant feeling tone. So the thing is constructed. So it can be constructed from the past encounters, or it can be constructed from, it's more like, in a way, circumstantial, conditional, in terms that as soon as it gets really hot, I eat ice cream. As soon as it's cold, forget it. I see all the English people eating ice cream in the winter, and I think, wait a minute, I mean, it's cold. Mm -hmm. So 
we use ice cream in a very different way. I use it to cool myself down. They use it, I presume, for the sugary level. So according to one circumstances, it's a pleasant feeling tone, another one, unpleasant feeling tone. So I think we have to see, and that's why it becomes very interesting with feeling tone to see what happens, how it's constructed and conditioned, and quite fascinating. Another thing you can play with is actually time. You can do a little experiment of looking at something with just a few seconds and staying with it. Like it'd be a flower, yourself in the mirror, the toilet, or whatever it might be, and see it for a few seconds. Notice if you see something for a few seconds, then generally it's very automatic. So you are with it and you are very immediately a little feeling tone. If you stay with it, often the feeling tone changes. And then you can see which way it changes. You see, because something you stay with it and then it becomes neutral. And possibly you stay too long in front of the mirror. I don't know if it becomes pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's for you to see the relationship you have there. So that also can be interesting to notice in a way the changing of the feeling tone. I mean, it's the same in a way if you eat, um, I don't know, chocolate cake or ice cream or something or asparagus or whatever. And, uh, you know, as uh, Achancha said, you know, if you eat a very special something every day, at the beginning it's very pleasant, then it becomes neutral, then you're fed up with it. You know, and again, you have the how often, how repetitive. So that's a feeling tone. But then what the Buddha is about is actually what interests him in terms of this feeling tone and where the freedom comes in is how we respond or react to the feeling tone or how they influence us. Personally, I'm, one of my theory is that ethics is actually to help us to deal with our reaction to feeling tone. That actually ethic is built on the fact that we have a fairly automatic reaction to certain feeling tone. And maybe extreme reaction to certain feeling tone. So for example, uh, killing. I mean, if somebody kills somebody, generally it's because uh, often, I mean, Stephen used to be a Buddhist chaplain, and he met lots of very nice people in jail, but they, they were murderers. And because there was that impulsion that as soon as they had a negative feeling tone, there was this desire for annihilation or kind of, you know, getting rid of. And in that way, they kill people, and then they ended up in jail. The same with stealing. I mean, you don't steal because, oh, who cares? Yeah, I could rob that bank, but no, no. I mean, you don't rob a bank because of a neutral feeling tone. Generally, you rob a bank because, mm, I won this, and that's one way to get it. 
So I think, in a way, to me, the feeling tone are very, in a way, closely connected to ethics. And that's why I think that's another something quite important to look at. So let's look at one quote from the Buddha, which is on mindfulness of feeling and why it is important. So it's a bit long, but I'll try to shorten it. So he says, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya 148, dependent on I, so using the one of the sense, the I, and visible form, I consciousness arises. The coincidence of the three, the visual form, the I, and the I consciousness is contact. With contact as condition, there arises what is felt as pleasant or as painful or neither painful nor pleasant. If on experiencing the contact of pleasant feeling, one does not grasp at it, and if there is no underlying tendency to grasp at it, if on experiencing the contact of painful feeling, one does not sorrow or lament and there is no underlying tendency to reject it, if on experiencing the contact of neutral feeling, one understands it, then one shall make an end of suffering by abandoning the tendency to grasp at pleasant feeling, to eliminate the aversion to painful feeling, and by abolishing, by dissolving the tendency to be ignorant about neutral feeling. So what he is basically saying is that generally we have a fairly automatic reaction to feeling tone. You have the contact, there is a feeling tone, and then the question is, what do you do? And to me, this is a place where actually awakening lies in that moment. And I feel what meditation gives us is a possibility to make a choice, to make, a, to kind of either to go for grasping, rejecting, ignorance, or to creatively engage. And so what is interesting in our daily life, or even during this rest of the week, is to notice so first, the first thing is to be aware of the feeling tone, becoming more aware of the different, it's nearly like the different tonality, the different notes of the way we feel in our contact with the world, that it be inner world or outer world. And so, and when there is a, so that's the first thing, to start to be more aware of it, which for me, it's not an intellectual exercise, but actually helps us to go more inside the experience. And then the next thing is to notice how we react to the feeling tone. If it's pleasant, I want more. I want to repeat it. I mean, one of the ones I found lovely is like, you have a wonderful weekend with your friend, they're leaving the door and you say, Let's do this again. So basically you say, that was great, 
lots of pleasant feeling tone. Let's try to recreate exactly the same pleasant feeling tone. The problem is that generally you can't. You can meet again and it could be nice, but it won't necessarily be exactly the same. Then with unpleasant feeling tone, I don't, we react even faster. I don't want this. So we generally kind of go into quite rejection mode. But also, I think with unpleasant feeling tone, because the problem with unpleasant feeling tone, as the Buddha says, it's painful. And then he often gets associated with all the pain from the past or imaginary to the future. And so from being just pain about this now, it becomes pain about all that. So very quickly, it amplifies. I think that's often what we do with the unpleasant feeling tone. And as I said before, also we have the tendency to spread it. And to me, that's one of the most dangerous things. If we don't aware, if we are not aware that suddenly I have an unpleasant feeling tone, and then I am redistributing it over there, then you are going to create even more. And so that's what personally I think is fascinating to see the shift. What is it that makes us feel, hmm, like, hmm, it's a little unpleasant or very unpleasant, and what do we do with that? Because what is also interesting to see, there is this other quote, which is a nun who says this, explaining to a lay person, that as long as there is a pleasant feeling tone, pleasantness continues. But when the pleasant feeling tone stops, often it becomes unpleasant. As long as the unpleasant feeling tone continues, it's unpleasant. But when it stops, it can become quite pleasant. You stop to have a headache or a backache, and you think, ah, or it stops raining or whatever. And then, the last one, if you understand pleasant feeling, neutral feeling tone, it can become pleasant. If you don't understand neutral feeling tone, it can become unpleasant. So that one is interesting. That's why personally I'm very interested in the neutral feeling tone. Because I think it's kind of a little kind of put on the side, but I think it's actually quite interesting in many different ways. So what I was going to say was sometimes the conditions are such that we have an, a pleasant feeling tone, really nice, pleasant feeling tone. And suddenly something shifts. And that shift of going from it was so pleasant and suddenly it's gone, and then it kind of actually is a little unpleasant, can actually really send us into a spin. And so I think that's also something to really notice, the shifting from the pleasant to the unpleasant, and how it's nearly like that shift nearly magnifies the unpleasant. But, and the problem is because we have such a good unpleasant feeling tone, intellectually, mentally, we own it. We think, oh yeah, we're great, it's fine. 
when actually inside it's not. And then that kind of gets the confluence with something else and then off we go. So that's why to me this is a great exploration, is really Dharma Vichaya, one of the factors of awakening to really look in the feeling tone. And then I want a ah, neutral feeling tone. Uh, why I think it's important? Personally, I think it's important because it's a baseline. First, it's a baseline, I feel. And secondly, because I think nowadays they have a bad press. You know? Neutral feeling tone, it's boring. You know? I mean, I've seen my knees being bored, and I know how it can be extremely painful. And for me, when it's neutral, I think, oh, great. It's peaceful. And I think that's what happened with the meditation, that we move from neutral to be boring to actually neutral being peaceful, being serene, being restful. So be the quality of yesterday, pasadi. And also the other thing is why I talk of baseline is that if you have the impression that feeling tone, in general, what's normal? And you think the baseline, pleasant number five. Then you don't have much leeway. You have just five to go up and then quite 15 to go down. <laughs> but if you see that actually the baseline is neutral and then you go up and down and sideways, then actually you start to have a different relationship. So I think it's also looking a little at our expectation of how we should be feeling, or how society tells us we should be feeling, or our friend, or our family, or whatever. Because we cannot avoid pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone. They will happen for many different reasons, and you have many different coexisting together at different times. So I think it's kind of neutral is making us discover uh, possibly a wider range of feeling tone. And then I wanted to, to say something. About creative engagement. What, what with this the second, I mean, Stephen today talked about the second, or possibly the second task. So this letting go, or as Andy Olinsky would say, this leading away, gently leading away. What does it mean? This, what I would call personally, creative engagement. What we could also call de-grasping. And I think this is something to look at in terms of identity and grasping. That actually, I'm not saying we don't have an identity and we don't identify, and that we should never identify. We have to identify to have a kind of relatively stable processual identity. But the thing is, is it what I would call a loose, stable, open identity with whatever contact and experience and feeling tone we have? Or do we have a grasping identity? Because if we look at the process of grasping, we grasp at something, 
Actually, as soon as we grasp, we identify. Me, mine. And so as soon as we grasp and we identify, we limit ourselves around what we grasp at. And so we solidify around it. And then the problem with grasping is that we then amplify. We magnify what we're grasping at. So you have the contact, you have the feeling tone, and then what do we do? Do we creatively engage with the contact, with the feeling tone, or do we grasp at it? If we grasp at it, we're going to have these two things happening, which is proliferation and exaggeration. So then we're not going to deal with what is going on. As soon as we grab and identify, we're going to have to deal with what is exaggerated, what is amplified, which will make it much more difficult. And so that moment, do we grasp, limit, exaggerate, proliferate in a positive or negative way, or do we creatively engage? And I think that's what the meditation is helping us to develop, that over time, either consciously we creatively engage instead of grasping, or over time naturally, because of the release, we creatively engage naturally in that moment. And so I'm not saying that we're going to always creatively engage. But I think what can be important is to notice what are the conditions that make me grasp? What are the conditions that help me to creatively engage? And I think a lot of it often depends on the other factor of awakening. The attention, the investigation, the effort, the calmness, the joy. So to see, like often I have this feeling with this word that was mentioned, let go. So often we told, let go. And so you're having this, I don't know, you're very angry or very sad or very something. And then somebody said to you, let go. And you think, let go. <laughs> it doesn't seem to change anything. And so I think it's important to see, it's not just kind of, you know, that personally why I started to do meditation. Because when I was young, 18 years old, I wanted to save the world. I wanted... I was very idealistic. And I would tell myself, don't be egoist. Don't be jealous. It had no effect whatsoever. I mean, I could tell myself all these things, but it would not change how I felt and how I react. And so this idea with creative engagement is that as we cultivate the concentration, the investigation, then the grasping, this grasping, fixing, limiting, identifying, in a way, dissolve. And then there is space for creative engagement. And so creative engagement with our thought, 
sensation, emotion, creative engagement in relationship. And I would say one of the things about the creative engagement is that it engages in this situation, in this moment, in that the experience you are in. And I just read a wonderful, like uh, I was in Australia and uh, teaching and somebody, I was talked about something and then they gave me a bunch of paper. So I took them with me, I thought at some point I read them. So finally I read them today. And there was this lovely story. And first I thought, wait a minute, because it was the title was Near Death Experience and Buddhist Practice. I thought, what's that? And actually it was wonderful. Uh, it's a friend of mine uh, in Australia who had a heart attack and basically died and was revived. And then he had this uh, huge uh, operation, and then he sent back home. And from the whole thing that happened, he had these 12 Buddhist points about how each moment, the operation, the rescue, the reviving, all these things actually were moments for practice. So basically, he just his heart attack and his dying and reviving became creative engagement. To such degree that he has this social worker who came to visit him because he had really a heavy duty operation. And generally after that operation, generally people are in a very bad state. And so generally she come and check on them that they're not too depressed. So she goes to see him and she said, you know, are you okay? You're not too depressed. Why should I be depressed about, you know? Look, I'm alive and I can do good in the world and I can da da da. And she said, hmm, are you a follower of the Dalai Lama or something? <laughs> <laughs> because she just visited somebody who had exactly the same experience and was very depressed. And so she must time to time in Buddhist to have had a heart attack. And they possibly are a little different, the way they engage with the situation. And then I wanted to, to look at something. It shows that you are really listening. So this person really was listening yesterday. And so here I go, I talk about you know, things being conditional. And then suddenly the person hears the word unconditional. She thinks, wait a minute, you know? Up to now, it's all conditional. And where does this unconditional come from? And this is was, I knew I was using the wrong term, but I could not find one at that moment. Is when yesterday, I was talking about unconditional love. And so the person was saying, but what do you mean by this? Because you know, uh, it's conditioned. So what I meant is actually I was more looking at love, kind of the way we, 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 I think love is very important. I think it's really a very important quality to experience, to cultivate in many different ways. But I feel often our love is rather conditional. I love you, but you need to change 
or we really, really love you once you stop doing this or doing that. But I feel when we do that, we say, you know, my love is conditioned upon this and that changing, then generally the other person say, okay, I will change if you change. And then we're not so sure we can change. Because it's not that easy to change in a way. So what I was saying is that if we start with more accepting the person, the person was a potential, the person was good quality and difficult quality. If you start from a an attitude of acceptance, then from there you can build trust and then find way to constructively work with what is difficult and also constructively cultivate what works between you. So I, I did not mean to say that we need to have unconditional love for everybody all the time. <laughs> I just meant that it generally helps if we start from the accepting first and then only afterward kind of trying to understand why, because when we do things which are painful, hurtful, maybe not noticing or whatever, that is conditional in terms that we don't do this all the time. So why do we behave in that way at that point? Why do I behave in that way at that point? Why do they behave in that way at that point? And I think what is important to see is that we all have different survival mechanisms. And so often, sometimes people, they're in a difficult situation and they want connection. They want to be surrounded by people. And other people, they, are, they have difficulty, they want to be alone. They want to be left alone and they'll deal with it. And so in a way, often we have a, or sometimes you have an emergency, somebody will go faster, somebody else will go slower. So we have different survival mechanisms. And so to me, if we start with this accepting love, then we can try to understand what are the conditions. And then we can look at, as I said yesterday, what are the limits? Yes, if you need space, you can have some space, but if you're too far, it might not work out. So what is a space that would work? So it's kind of, in a way, looking at these different things. So that's what I meant. So are there any questions or comments? Yes. Um, I just want to ask about emotion. Because emotion is, say, a word that we use now. It doesn't seem to be part of Buddhist language particularly. So and you've been talking about feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant. So how do you, where do you locate emotion with it? Is that where you locate it? And what's the, do no. you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That no, no. Whole area it's, as it relates to. It's a very good question because I was not clear about that. So I would say the basic is a feeling tone, contact feeling tone. Then generally from that feeling tone, that can develop into what I call a feeling sensation. A kind of, possibly you could say, affective sensation, which we experience in the body. And then that, according to certain conditions, can be what I would say become 
an emotion which can then become a disturbing emotion. So I think there is kind of like a kind of a spectrum. There is kind of like a continuum a little bit. And so, so we have, you know, like we, we sit in meditation or we are in daily life and suddenly we feel something. We might feel something, happiness, or we might feel sadness. But you see, when I talk about feeling sensation, this is something also which we can be aware of, which would be a more modern take on this, would be when we feel something, where do we feel it? This affective sensation. So generally we feel it in the heart, or maybe in the tummy, maybe in the solar plexus. Once somebody told me they felt it in their neck. So you feel something. And generally, we are very quickly giving it a meaning and then associate it with other things. And personally, I think in terms of meditation practice, it's interesting to be just with the feeling sensation itself. How does that feel to kind of know it in the body? And then if there are certain conditions, you will have what I would say like a bonafide emotion, like you will feel angry, sad, anxious, joyous, whatever. So again, this generally, I feel, becomes more, you could nearly say, mentalized. Like you have the emotion, so you have the, what you feel in the body, but generally there is also quite a lot of mental activity, which generally reinforces it. So it's kind of emotional, but you could say emotional, mental at the same time, because the two goes together. And then it can become obsessive and disturbing. Because I think emotion are just not like you have a creating functioning of the mental capacity. You have a creative functioning of the emotional capacity. So as human beings, we can have emotion. And emotion have function. Anger as a function, sadness as a function, anxiety as a function, happiness, joy as a function. So the thing I think with the practice is to be aware that often we become aware of emotion where actually we're already gone into what I would call disturbing emotion. When we move from the creative functioning because this is not working or this is hurtful or this is sad, to what I would call the exaggerated, magnified, amplified version because of the grasping, the identifying. That's the way I would kind of see the, the continuum. Okay, so maybe, yes. I realized I didn't feel it in the eye. Of course not. I was asking, 
Generally here. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's it like interesting because with flavors or it's of course you can feel it being all over the body, but it's more like localized. Mm -hmm. But with the eye and the ear, it's very funny because we don't feel the pleasantness there. Of course not. Yeah, no no, very much so, very much so. So it's kind of also helping us to locate. You know, where do we feel this in the body? And I think it can be useful to see how, oh yeah, this is what is going on. And then it's a little different with the different senses. Mm -hmm. Yes? I was just going to ask um, the last response, um, the format and the prior response. Um, I was just wondering what, um, what part thought plays in the creation of emotion my sense is that even though you're probably talking about experience, it's a memory uh, that you go into a built-up kind of constructed response. Um, my sense is that first of all, you, you think before you feel. It depends. You see, I think it really depends. Uh, different tendency, different conditions. Some people actually, they feel first. It's like and then generally they feel something very strongly, so generally they have to give a meaning to it. And so generally they find, generally we find a, a meaning to it. And then it kind of goes the two together. Or sometimes it's, yeah, a mental reaction, which it lead to an emotional reaction. I think it depends with different people, different conditions. Uh, you see, you have to be careful here. No, no, you, uh, you see them. Uh, there have been, been lots of um, experiments scientifically, which I cannot explain because I'm not scientific, but that actually our intention is not as fast <laughs> as our action. Uh, Libet is the one who discovered that. That actually, before we even think, we move. And I experienced that one day. I was um, walking on a path in California, <laughs> and then suddenly my body did, a, did like a kind of, uh, I, I jumped. Stephen was next to me, I said, why did you do that? It was like an Olympic jump. <laughs> And I had no idea what I did, I don't know. And so I jumped, and as I jumped, I realized, oh yeah, that's why I'm jumping. There is a kind of a snake, a kind of like a dangerous snake, and I was going to walk on it. And before I had registered it was a dangerous snake, my body had moved. So I think, uh, I mean, they had done different study about that. I think it possibly is not Totally like that, but I could not go into the detail. One has to look at the books. Thank you. Yeah? But the future of that, uh, this point in the other I'm just trying to clarify. Carl Gray said that uh, it was the feeling that the thoughts created the feeling. Uh, I can't hear you, you have to speak. Uh, well, 
colleague here said that she thought that that thoughts created the feeling. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's that thoughts create the emotion. When you jumped immediately to snake, your feeling took you to jump. But afterwards you were probably more afraid. And that's the point at which it became an emotion. And that would be, presumably, influenced by you see, I think we have to be careful to think everything is in the brain. I think we have to see, I think we, I don't think it's kind of actually totally the right place to, to talk about this because we can talk in terms of how we experience it. And so I think it's for us to check. That's what I'm saying. Check it for yourself. Was it the thought first or was it the emotion first? But in terms of scientific study, the, the conclusion is actually very rather complicated depending on many different systems and different things that they've observed. So personally, I would say yes, sometime. But then you have to see what do you mean by thought? You see, personally, when I talk thought, I don't mean necessarily perception. When I talk thought, I'm talking mental state, mental activity. Perception is you see something. So it's kind of back to what the Buddha said. You know, eye consciousness, you see something. But in a way, the whole body and mind see something. When I talk of mental state, it's more when you kind of start to get entangled in different commenting, proliferating, magnifying thing of that nature. So also possibly we're not talking about the same thing. So we kind of how de we define our term. But in the end, the best thing is to actually look for yourself in your experience. You know, and personally, I think it's arising more like multi-perspectival. Sometimes it's a thought that grabs us. Sometimes it's a sensation that grabs us. Sometimes you feel more like an emotion. And sometimes it's, I would say, the three together, kind of coming together. So I think it's, in language, we can separate. But I think in the experience, it's very hard to kind of really separate it. But then we can see how we are aggravated. And it can be aggravated by the nervous system being upped or it can be aggravated by the mental system going round. Uh, there is a, there and there, and then we have to stop. No, no, very good point. Very good point. Because that's why I say it's so fast. So sometimes you have the feeling told here and you're already there. You know, I mean, it's kind of like you think, why am I doing this? And then you kind of, sometimes that's what I do. I go back and I say, oh, that's where it started. No, exactly. So, yeah. I, I think what you're talking about with the snake and you're jumping so quickly 
is something that has been studied. It, it's you, you have a fight or flight response without actually being conscious of that response. There are certain images, and I think snakes are one of them, that elicit that response in us without, us, without it having to go through a thought process. You could say the reptilian brain saved, my, saved me from the scared snake. <laughs> which is that I have this sense of a feeling tone, and maybe I'm, maybe this is incorrect, but that it is more complex emotionally. As an example, when I walk in the stone hallway towards, you know, from the kitchen towards the garden, the exit at the back of the building, there's an institutional smell to me. And it immediately sets off a sort of cascade of, of feeling, feeling tones, I would say, about other institutions that I have experienced. And they just go boom, 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 very quickly. And some of them are unpleasant. They're schools that I didn't like, or being here at a time when I was unhappy. Um, others are not unpleasant, and it's interesting I'm conscious of those, and I was today particularly watching that. But it had all these different emotional aspects. It accessed emotional places within, within what I'm not sure, within my brain, my, my personality, and it made me feel a certain way. I could end up being neutral about it, or at other times, those kinds of thoughts would take me to a sad place or a happy place. Yeah, no, no, I mean, again, I think what you, you explain, you describing is actually what possibly I have not said clearly enough, that what you experience is how it's constructed, you know, and then it can be constructed in a more simple manner, or it can be constructed in a very complex manner, what you describe. And so here, what you have is that you have the feeling tone, and in a way, kind of then, it gets more complicated than just feeling tone, because then you have the memory, then you have different things coming together. So in a way, the, the contact, I mean, you don't, don't just have contact and feeling tone. Then we would have to go back and talking about ma uh, mana factor, which are contact, feeling, intention, perception, attention. So also this thing come into being because then you have the meaning. Here I was just talking about the first two. Then we would have to talk about the three others for actually what was happening. Because it was a moment of consciousness which had different aspects. But then it kind of would have <laughs> made a very long talk. <laughs> but yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. Okay, then we'll stop here and have a little walk here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.